Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to bring in an expert who can help us figure out what the Federal Reserve means for investors. Don Rissmiller is the chief economist for Strategus Research. He joins me here in studio. Don, maybe you could explain the relationship between what we did or didn't learn from the Federal Reserve and the stock market and bond market reaction this week. Yeah, sure. Well, it's good to be here. So... Let me say a, a couple things to start out. First, I, the Fed was trying. I really do believe that with the statement and what came out in the press conference. They were trying to thread the needle to say the U.S. economy, when we look at things like the labor market, is in good shape. So if you look at the unemployment rate or jobless claims or some of those data series, that part of the economy is doing quite well. What I think was missing from the Fed statement was some mention of the interest rate sensitive sectors that included things like housing. I thought it would have been relatively easy to say something like housing data was mixed. If you didn't want to say weak, you could have just acknowledged some of the mixed data there, including some of the survey data. Also, there was a note that inflation expectations were little changed. And that's hard to square with what you're seeing in some of the commodity space, especially the big drop in oil. So maybe that's going to be changed in future statements. But these are things that the stock market's going to pick up on to say, hey, maybe there's a disconnect with what I thought could come out of this statement, what the Fed's view of what's going on is, how it differs from my view. And I think that's what generated some of the market reaction. All right. Well, Don, uh, just to to sort of follow along with that, because it's not just a domestic situation. And from Guy Johnson's perspective in London, is the Federal Reserve now the central bank to the world? So they will never say that. And I think they respect the idea that there are a lot of differences in different uh, parts of the world. But uh, what we do see is a big reaction when the balance sheet comments came up and when Chair Powell said that the balance sheet was declining on this autopilot type of uh, trajectory, I do think that mattered to global investors. I do think that started off some of the serious uh, risk-off moves, and I think that was partly the global situation uh, that came into play. Good morning, uh, Guy in London. Don, has has the president done permanent damage to the relationship between the White House and the Fed? I think that's a little premature. I do think some of the techniques here in terms of how it's come out publicly are novel. I think this is a bit different than we might have seen in other administrations. But I think it's hard to say that this has never happened before, that we've never seen a politician interested in what the Fed is doing. Certainly, this is being conveyed in a unique way. But if there's permanent damage, I don't think it's very large. If the president were to try and remove the Fed chair, would that cause permanent damage? So I think that would rise to a different standard. You can remove a Fed chair for cause. It's really challenging to think of another way that that could be done. And so, again, barring something out there for cause, which I think is something that would be really strange, that would start to rise to the standard of more permanent damage, yes. Tom, 
Don, just a little bit more on the connection between the Federal Reserve and what happens in markets. You get a call from a client that says, I don't understand how we can get a 1,000 point move in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, a more than 100 point move in the S&P 500. I received a text message yesterday from a money manager saying President Donald Trump had not tweeted during the day. He was obviously on route to Iraq. Can you draw any conclusions that if we were to have none of this new messaging that you just described from either the Fed or the president, that we would see a less volatile market? We might see a less volatile market for a while, but the information that's coming out, whether it's there's a concern at the Fed, whether it's there's a concern with how the trade situation is going, there's a concern with what's going on in China's local economy, there's a big drop in oil prices. Those, I think, are the fundamental drivers of some of this risk-off trade. So maybe you could change where the volatility enters the system, you could change how that's going to express itself, but I wouldn't say we want a complete blackout. Is, is the market being overly pessimistic about the U.S. economy? Like, I look at the U.S. consumer, and it's always amazing to look at the consumer kind of from afar. The U.S. consumer seems to still be firing on all cylinders. I think that's right. And so the challenge is the consumer is still the bulk of the economy. There are good supports there. And that's the labor market story coming through. So the consumer should be a support in 2019. The challenge is going to be if the economy growth rate slows, it's probably going to come from the investment side rather than the consumption side. And so the pathway forward to a long cycle to a sustainable economic expansion is you see investment, you see the capital spending, that gets you productivity, that productivity pays for some of the higher wage gains that are coming through at full employment. So it's capex to productivity to wages that gets you the sustainable cycle. So that's where I think the challenge is. It isn't so much that the economy is in trouble right now, but looking forward, we'd like to see more on the I part of the C plus I plus G equation to make the sustainable yeah. economic argument. And, and do you do you have faith in the ability of the Fed to communicate how it's working through this process? The communication over the last few months has been a little hit and miss, uh, and I'm just wondering whether or not, kind of to, to circle back to where we sort of started, whether or not the Fed needs to up the game here and find a, a, find a better way of communicating. I do think we could get some clarity on a couple key items. What do they think of housing? What do they think of inflation expectations in a world where oil prices have declined? And do they really think the balance sheet is on autopilot indefinitely? Could that change? If we can answer some of those questions, I think Fed communication would be a lot better. What is the most undervalued asset right now, Don? Well, when we look at U.S. equities, you're pricing in a good chunk of a recession. When you're looking at some of the global equities, you're pricing in a good chance of a, a downturn. So if you get a Fed pause, if you get a trade deal with China and the U.S., if you get stimulus in the local Chinese economy, if you get stability in oil prices, and that downturn, that recession does not happen, I do think there's a lot of value there. Value in equities. Yes. Global as well as U.S. equities. Yes, trickier there, but yes. All right. Thanks very much for being with us. Much appreciated. Don Rissmiller is uh, the head of uh, economic research at Strategus Research. He is their chief economist talking about the future and the potential for gains in equities.
Let's talk a little bit about what impact the trade talks are likely to have on the agricultural commodity complex in 2019. Talks are going to restart, we understand, at a relatively low level uh, on January the 7th. Uh, so how closely will the agricultural complex be watching what happens? Let's find out now. Kona Huck is ED and F Man's head of commodity research and joins us in our London studio. Good morning. So let's talk a bit about what the trade story is going to mean for for your world in in 2019. Is it going to be the kind of the dominant theme? Is is the trade story going to set the narrative? Yes, in the sense, at least for the sentiment, because it's had a massive negative bearing on the market. Um, The fact that the US is not able to shift its massive crops this year because China's not buying because of on, the, on the back of these tariffs, has meant that China, the U.S. stocks are really, really heavy. Um, and ultimately, what happens in the U.S. has a massive underpinning on the Chicago futures markets because that's what sets the tone there. So the U.S. supply-demand balances are really key here. And um, ultimately, the U.S. supply-demand balances will only start shifting if they're able to start exporting a lot more of their excessive volumes of soybeans, corn and wheat, none of which have happened this year, all of which has huge potential the following year if they're able to come to some kind of deal. Okay, so kind of let's talk about risk. I'm trying to figure out how, if I'm a trader, am I making money in 2019? The risk sounds quite asymmetric. I.e., There's a lot of negative news by the sounds of things already priced into the market, into into the various crops. Is is the kind of, is the easier trade, therefore, to look for the upside? Is that kind of what we're looking at here? Is all the negative news priced in? Am I going to get a pop? Not necessarily. The reason being is... Um, Although the U.S. farmers will probably look at this year's dismal price action and think about reducing their planted acres for next year, um, that might sound good for U.S. supply-demand balances. Um, But on the world market spectrum, you have a situation where Brazilian and Argentinian crops are likely to become massive. In fact, we're talking about a record Brazilian crop. And Brazil, if you remember, have been the biggest beneficiaries of this trade um, trade tariff uh, um, dispute because they have been the beneficiaries of massive amounts of Chinese buying. So they're going to, uh, they're planting like crazy. They're going to have a record crop. It's an El Nino year, which actually helps um, some of the, um, this, the soil moisture levels there. So even if the U.S. does its part in terms of redux- reducing production, South America could more than offset that. Kona, are we entering a new commodity cycle or are we already in it? No, we're already in it. Um, I think if we're looking at commodities as an asset class generally, I think key will be the U.S. dollar. Obviously, 2018 was all about a strong U.S. dollar, at least the second half was, and that massively um led to a, a sell-off in commodities, whether it's grains or softs or metals or crude oil. It is so massively important how the dollar trades. And I think if 2019 brings a peak dollar story on the back of you know, slowdown in the U.S. economy or Fed reducing the amount of times it, it hikes rates, and any re- resulting reduction in the, in the U.S. dollar strength will support commodities. So fundamentals aside, I think, you know, that is, that is something I would look at in a more positive lighting, the fact that the dollar could start to um, soften by the second half of 2019, and that would ultimately help commodities, ags included. Is there a specific commodity that you believe is the most oversold right now? 
Um, one commodity that I follow closely is sugar, and that has fallen massively on the back of two years of very big surpluses. It's also suffered on the back of a very weak Brazilian real. Now, 2019 should see the market move into a deficit, number one. And number two, the Brazilian real on the back of the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil could start bringing some positive inflows into the Brazilian real. And so both of those factors could help sugar prices recover quite nicely in 2019, but not necessarily the first half, the second half. Just very briefly, Kona, um, technology is playing an increasingly large role in this sector. How I, how easy is it to understand how that's going to affect pricing going forward? I, you look at the big cargoes and all the, sort of these companies, they are increasingly focusing on the technology aspects of farming, ag, and this is kind of an area that's ripe for, dis, ripe for disruption. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the, um, the ways in which... Well, actually, you know, if you look about, if you have, if you think about why agricultural commodities have done so badly price-wise in the last five years, we've had surpluses year after year. One massive reason is because agriculture has spent a huge amount of money in developing seeds, the kind yep. of drought-resistant seeds, flood-resistant, pest-resistant, yep. and so despite all of this, you've you've seen record yields. Kona, been great to see you. Thank you very much indeed for coming to see us both on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio. Kona Hack, EDNF Man's Head of Commodity Research. So what do we make of the price action over the last couple of days? Massive rally in U.S. stocks yesterday, today fading. What lessons can we learn from all of this? Well, let's find out. Marvin Barth is the head of FX and EM Macro Strategy Research at Barclays and joins us now on the line. Marvin, what are you made of the price action? Well, I think it's uh, typical uh, holiday liquidity, right? Um, So you combine that with some volatility from uh, U.S. policymakers in terms of uh, the risk that uh, people had felt with Fed tampering, and that seemed to be eviscerated yesterday by uh, the comments from Hassert as well as uh, Secretary Mnuchin. And uh, today we go back to, well, people are still worried about uh, earnings going forward. Does that tell us anything about how we're going to make money in 2019, or is this just a kind of idiosyncratic 24-hour uh, yeah, period? I would, I would definitely uh, avoid in extrapolating this into the new year. My guess is that you will see some of it in the first couple of weeks of, of the new year. This is the typical pattern. People do extrapolate patterns uh, forward, uh, and roughly around the second or third week of January, we get some sort of major reversal. So... Look, the underlying fundamentals here are still quite good. Uh, the U.S. economy is tracking at about 3% in the fourth quarter. It looks like the fundamentals are quite good for the year ahead. The reactions we've seen so far seem to be uh, a bit over the top in our view. Marvin Barth, you and your team, Arup Chatterjee and Hamish Pepper, you've done a great job putting together the FX and Emerging Market Macro Strategy Forecast Update Tell us, does it describe dollar strength continuing in 2019? 
Yeah, so we are looking for relative dollar strength. I mean, if you look at it in, in fact, it's mostly uh, range trading versus the G10, but continued strength versus emerging markets. I think relative to where I understand consensus to be, that does put us at the upper end of the spectrum for dollar strength. But again, this comes back to where do we see weakness in the world? It's in the rest of the world, not in the U.S. The U.S. is actually doing quite well, despite the uh, sell-off in U.S. equity markets. Uh, and the underlying fundamentals are, are strong. So you're going to get a continued carry divergence. The reason why we have that rough, flat profile versus G10, however, is that the dollar does look um, pretty uh, excessively valued at these these levels. Um, and so it's a balance between carry on one side and valuation on the other that keeps you in a range trade. You've got to help Guy and tell him whether he should be converting all of his pounds sterling into U.S. dollars now. What happens if we don't get a Brexit deal? Do we still trade around 126.40 for the pound sterling against the dollar? No, I think if, if, if we failed to get a deal, we would see a significant sell-off in, in, in sterling. Now, a lot of that's increasingly in the price. People are increasingly expecting that. What I think is important here is that once you get to about 120, that's that's our, our, our view, you are going to see a lot of long-term buyers come in because at the end of the day, this is still a, an economy, the UK, that has a highly educated workforce, lots of uh, technical skills, top universities, um, a tremendous amount of value in it, and you've got sterling trading near 50-year lows on a real trade-weighted basis. So as we get down to those levels, you're going to see a lot of long-term buyers come in uh, to scoop that up. So, yeah, could we trade below 120 on an intraday basis, maybe even for a couple of days? Sure. But will we sustain below that? I think that's highly unlikely. Marvin, do you really want to get directional? This is like the volatility in the pound has been eye-watering, and I appreciate that we've been going down for a very long period of time. But getting directional in the pound seems like it seems like a difficult thing to do right now. Well, I think, I, I think you've got it right on there, uh, Guy. This is one of the reasons why we've avoided putting out trade recommendations in, in sterling right now. Um, I, I don't think that uh, it makes a lot of sense given the amount of volatility that you have in there, and that's on top of all the other volatility in markets. But I would say that, yeah, if, if you do get down towards 120, that's just such a good value that you should be coming in to buy there. Let's take it back to the States. Um, has President Trump done lasting damage to the relationship with the Fed? I don't think so. I mean, I think people get a little bit uh, exercised with these things, in part because President Trump does cause such a visceral reaction in, in many people, um, but also because memories are short. I mean, there was no more institutional president uh, than the late President uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, who just passed, passed away. And let's recall that back in 1991, he too <laughs> criticized the Fed for hiking rates, right? Um, so and he didn't want to get rid of the Fed share. Uh, he, he was he was pretty uh, aggressive in talking about uh, um, pres- or uh, Chair- Chair- Chairman Greenspan at, at the time. Look, I th- I think that President Trump made a mistake. I think that he and his advisors have learned in the last couple of days that that is a mistake to 
uh, undermine people's confidence in U.S. institutions. That's the whole reason why people invest in the U.S., because the institutions are stronger than anywhere else. Um, and uh, my guess is they'll take this, this, this lesson home. Marvin Barth, many people driving all across the United States, they're interested in things such as gasoline prices. Tell us about the U.S. dollar versus commodity currencies. The Australian dollar has dropped about 10% in value against the greenback. And if you take a look at the Canadian dollar, the loonie, down 7.5% year to date against the U.S. dollar. Yeah, well, this is something that uh, um, my colleagues Hamish Pepper and uh, Nick Seropoulos uh, wrote about uh, a, a year or two ago about the effects of Dutch disease um, uh, in terms of we saw this massive commodity super cycle in the last decade. Um, you saw a tremendous expansion of these economies over this uh, over that period. And now you're seeing the downside uh, effects of this. And this is one of the reasons why people keep pushing back their expectations for the RBA t- uh, to hike. Um, uh, you know, the uh, Bank of Canada is hiking, but only because it's attached, you know, Canada's attached to the strongest economy in the world right now, the U.S., but even there, people have tempered their expectations. All of these things are associated with a um, long-term structural Dutch disease issue that they had overvalued currencies during a commodity boom, and they're starting to see the after effects of that. Marvin, is there an emerging market currency that in your mind is currently undervalued against the dollar? Yeah, well, I think that um, some of the uh, East Asian currencies are, are, are looking more interesting uh, at, at this point. Um, uh, you know, especially if we look at um, Korean won, Taiwan, Taiwan dollar. These are all these are all currencies um, that are well positioned uh, um, uh, relative to others in terms of their their balance sheet profiles. Unfortunately, they are really uh, exposed to um, uh, trade issues uh, more. So than others, um, to the extent that those have been priced in, I think there's some value there. If you want to get, uh, and this gets to Guy's directional point in volatility, if you want to uh, get uh, a lot more hairy, you could go for the uh, Turkish lira. It does look like it's adjusted quite a bit, um, but given the underlying institutional issues there, uh, you're in for a volatile ride if you want to pick up that carry. Thanks very much for being with us, as always. Marvin Barth of Barclays. He is the head of FX and Emerging Market Macro Strategy Research, calling for continued strength of the U.S. dollar relative to those G10 currencies. We're going to talk a little bit about currencies. We've got Mark McCormick, TD Securities, North American head of FX Strategy. Mark, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. We're in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. You're here to tell us what is going to happen with the U.S. dollar in 2019. Is it going to maintain its strength against its G10 trading partners? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. So the, I guess the one thing I'd like to highlight on that is that uh, we think that the strength, is, the strength of the dollar is going to reverse next year. So um, I think the way you have to kind of think about it is there's a, there's a couple different dollars in play. You've got your emerging market U.S. dollar basket. You've got a dollar block Aussie Kiwi CAD dollar, uh, dollar basket. And then you also have the reserve currencies like the euro, sterling, 
Swiss, yen. So our biggest conviction view for next year is those reserve currencies start to strengthen again. And it's partly reversal of the uh, what we've been calling the MAGA theme, where Make America Great Again is a kind of momentum trade in U.S. assets, whether it be corporate bonds, equities, U.S. dollar, is going to give way back towards a little bit more of a, what we'd call kind of a global reflation trade, where the rest of the world's central banks can start to tighten policy a little bit more, catch back up with the Fed, and also see undervalued currencies, particularly in Europe and in Asia, start to outperform again. Well, Mark, that reflation trade, I mean, that's that's sort of the fear that a lot of folks in the market, particularly in equities, have uh, that, you know, it could, it could sort of end up being kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy where we end up uh, sort of where the market sort of tips uh, the economy into recession uh, rather than the Fed itself. And I wonder how much of a risk is that right now? Yeah, it's a great point. I think I think the way you want to think about it is is an element of how are U.S. assets performing right now as a signal for where the U.S. economy should be maybe next year, maybe even you know we go on to 2020, versus how does the rest of the world assets performing at this point as well. So I think a nice way to think about it is that one of the main drivers for the dollar throughout this year really wasn't interest rates. It wasn't that the U.S. had a higher yield than the rest of the world or the Fed was tightening. It really came through the equity market performance. And the U.S. versus the rest of the world MSCI ratio benchmark, basically which peaked around the midterms, was showing that rest of world capital was coming back into the United States. And largely, I think what it was is a repatriation of American investors pulling money out of Europe, pulling money out of emerging markets, pulling money out of, out of Asia. But I think the story for next year kind of focuses on the rest of the world growth has kind of gone through the major pain that we saw through the parts of this year. U.S. data surprises outperformed most major economies for the better part of 2018. Equity prices, again, that story has already been kind of starting to reverse already. But I think the reflation trade is one where the market's expecting a global recession. And I would say our FX views are kind of predicated on the fact that it's really more of a correction of U.S. assets, uh, particularly off the, you know, the, the ebbing of the fiscal support, the ebbing of the repatriation of capital flows, which I think was a big underappreciated factor that drove U.S. assets this year. And all of that is a rotation of U.S. investment and other investors, which have large savings, back into higher-yielding assets outside of the U.S., which is you don't need a reacceleration of global growth, but you just don't need to see the downside that's been priced into the rest of the world throughout 2018. And I think that's where the upside surprise comes, is that the rest of the world looks okay, and U.S. markets correct at a much faster pace, which is what we've seen since the midterms. Well, Mark, it looks as though they're correcting this, uh, in today's trade, taking a look at stocks right now, the Dow Jones Industrial Average lower by more than 300 points, S&P 500 down 29, NASDAQ falling 1.3%, it's lower by 85. If this continues, what does that do to the dollar? Yeah, it's, a, it's another good point, too, because I think what's very interesting is when you think about kind of the performance of broad FX this year, emerging markets were the big pain trade throughout 2018. And you could see that they suffered going into the summer. But since U.S. assets have been correcting since, uh, since around the midterms, emerging markets have been okay. So the beta of emerging market currencies or even emerging market equities to U.S. equities has been ebbing. Um, and the currencies that should perform well are actually starting to perform well, currencies like the yen. And what's interesting is that the yen has not been correlated with emerging markets. And when there's a lot of pain going on in emerging markets, particularly in the summer, dollar-yen was moving higher. Uh, but now what we're starting to see is U.S. assets are correcting. I think a big element here is what I think another underappreciated fact is that dollar-yen is not really trading off of 
interest rate differentials per se. It was trading off of the fact that the Japanese have one of the world's largest current account surpluses. They are a net global saver. And basically, they were pushing a lot of unhedged capital into the United States for the bulk of 2018. And I think what you're seeing now is that U.S. assets are correcting, and Japanese investors are now repatriating those flows. You know, they invested in things that were unhedged, they were very short-term, they were money market-like securities and even corporate bonds and some equity plays. And now the U.S. assets are, are correcting much faster than the rest of the world. Japanese investors are pulling their money home. But the, at the exact same time, you're not seeing emerging markets roll over. Emerging market currencies are actually performing relatively well. So I think this fits with that thesis that it's really kind of, is this a, I guess, a global reflation trade, not the same flavor that it was in 2017, but it's, it's kind of the MAGA make America assets great again is kind of underperforming relative to the rest of the world. And I think that's the, the element of where you go into 2019, where the U.S. dollar t- t- is going to continue to underperform uh, on a broader basis. But it'll depend on those different baskets we were talking about, like dollar block currencies, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. I think they're all set to continue to underperform largely because of the end of easy money, which is, which is another, major, another major theme in, in, in FX markets. You, you made a good point about the current account over in Japan. And I mean, you know, the, part of the whole goal of this uh, trade war that we've sort of found ourselves in, uh, I guess ostensibly, was to sort of address the current account deficit that we have. And, and I wonder, do you see any real hope for, for you know, us making any sort of dent in that on the U.S. side and that could, could potentially give a little bit more lift to the dollar? I don't think so. I think the, the problem is is that the rhetoric versus the actual economic policies that are put in place are the policies that are put in action are ones that are designed to make the current account deficit worse. And so uh, whether you know, talk about the different values of currencies or trying to eliminate uh, the, the, the trade gaps across different countries, you know, there's a, there's a function here that the U.S. is the reserve currency, and having the reserve currency and essentially running a current account deficit and essentially having, if you think about where the twin deficit's going to be in 2020, it's going to be close to 9% of GDP. So the budget deficit plus the current account uh, means that the U.S. is going to have a ton of funding requirements coming through over the next two years, and now you've seen that the growth impulse that comes along with the fiscal stimulus on a forward-looking basis is already largely priced in. So the the concept of kind of introducing fiscal stimulus at the late cycle part of where the U.S. business cycle is at, I think comes to the detriment where this is actually going to make only make the right. current account, the, you know, the accounting of the budget plus the current account is what's going to make right. it very challenging for the U.S. dollar. Our guest is Mark McCormick, TD Securities North American head of FX strategy. Mark McCormick, who or what actually moves Forex markets? That's a great question. I think there's a lot of different actors that, that kind of move it, and they all have different um, incentives for what they want to try to do. So you have major corporations, you have major retail investors, you also have major institutional accounts, and then you've got uh, you know leverage players like hedge funds. So you kind of have all these different players, some of them being hedgers, some of them just having business um, production process. They have to work through different accounting flows, and then you also have people who, who want to try to make money in FX. So it's kind of a combination of all those people. Now, do you see that the uh, that the corporate uh, borrower and the the corporate player in the FX market do they react to these day by day changes in forex relationships? 
They don't. They're the the really big ones. The big multinationals are tuned in. Um, so they're they're trying to make sense of a lot of the stuff that comes through on a day to day basis, especially the geopolitics. Um, they're tuned into big data releases and they're tuned into kind of the things that happen in markets, but they're not as hypersensitive to that information as other style of investors would be. I guess the easiest way to say it in in terms of market parlance, there's no one tapping uh, a corporate on the shoulder to kind of be like, well, you know, so how is your portfolio doing right now? So there's an element of where they're they're tuned in because there's definitely impacts their business, impacts their accounting flows, but it's not the same level of engagement that you'd get from a PM either at a, um, at a hedge fund or, or some other, you know, or uh, an in, uh, institutional account. Uh, Mark, when you look at uh, market sentiment and, and some of the technical levels uh, with regards to the dollar, uh, and you go back to the, the Fed meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago on the 20th or uh, whenever it was, we had that sell-off in the dollar that day after the Fed announcement. And ever since then, it's kind of been hugging that 50-day moving average, and, and we really haven't broken free from that. And I'm wondering how much uh, sentiment has sort of been uh, uh, battered, I guess, by uh, what we learned uh, from the Fed that day. Yeah, it's a good point. I, it's, uh, I think it's interesting insofar as the, the Fed has kind of obviously dialed things back a little bit. The rhetoric has changed. Uh, they're very comfortable in talking about, before that meeting, the concept that they're a long way from neutral, which means there's probably a lot more runway uh, for interest rates to run higher. And they've they've done a very kind of orchestrated pullback from that. And now we even get from the recent meeting that we may only see, you know, not directly, but we've seen a big move in the, in the dot plot, which to me was the most kind of biggest glaring takeaway is that again, there's a period of time where the dots are coming to the market and the market's still not moving towards the dots. And so it's more about the Fed is kind of coming into where the market thinks they should be. And so there's an element here of some kind of pause potentially next year. But I think for the dollar, kind of if you're thinking DXY terms, you know, 60% of that basket is euro. So there's still an element here where the European news flow is still very sensitive to all the global dynamics. Um, it's also very sensitive to the growth dynamics in Europe, which all of our short-term kind of high-frequency growth models haven't seen a turn yet. So we're not overly bullish the euro kind of the next couple of weeks or you know, if you were to talk about in technical terms in the very short run, but we're actually very bullish the euro kind of second half of next year. I'd even say early you know, second quarter where I think you're, you're going to start to see a turn in the euro, largely because a lot of those growth dynamics have been holding them back are, are temporary. So, yeah, I think there's an element here where what we try to do is is we've re-engineered CTA trading models. We look at other kind of proxies for for sentiment and, and kind of positioning. And so all of those signals kind of even running up into the Fed are all super stretched long U.S. dollars. So this is part of that coiling spring where the market's kind of sitting in one direction, and now you get an impetus, you get a trigger. And uh, I think the Fed plus the correction of U.S. assets is, is really kind of the force uh, that's propelling the dollar lower right now. But it kind of depends on, again, which, what, which dollar you're looking at. Because right now, you know, dollar EM is something that's been very stable in an environment where you have lots of volatility, which is, which is telling you a signal that, you know, there's, there's other things kind of going on in the FX market. Mark, what are your signals telling you about the Chinese currency, the yuan, the renminbi? Is it overvalued against the U.S. dollar? Or, as many have already described, is it undervalued? 
Yeah, it's it's probably an element of it's still slightly overvalued relative to where Chinese growth should land next year. So I, I think there's still a story that dollar CNH is going to break through seven. Um, but I think it's something that's already kind of been priced in is kind of worked through the market's understanding of where we think these dynamics will land. So the the impulse you have there is the U.S. economy and the Chinese economy are are diverging. And also, if you think about the impact of the trade wars, there's, you know, there's an added beta that I guess comes through the impact of, uh, of the trade war specifically on China. But the big driver of the Chinese growth story is really China deleveraging. So China's been trying to slow down its economy because it's trying to move capital from inefficient parts to potentially more productive parts. And that process in itself is actually generates slower growth in the short term. So our view is, is that dollar CNH will still kind of break seven, but the weakness in CN in CNH or or the renminbi would come through other major currencies. So it's really, and Chinese policymakers have been trying to focus people on this. Is it's think more about the basket. So the currency can still weaken against everything, but it's not, um, you know, it's not a big dollar, you know, dollar renminbi revaluation or or stronger. Uh, bilateral cross, it's really that the renminbi could weaken against all these other currencies like the euro, the yen, uh, Norway, Sweden, um, some of the other major currencies, and even some of the emerging markets like India and Indonesia, uh, some of those others. But the basket around CNH is really a Taiwan, South Korea, CNY, essentially low-yielding Asian currencies still probably have some element of depreciation next year. You talk about, well, you talk about the, that CNH could weaken. I, I mean, I guess in a, in a sort of a completely sort of free-floating market, I, I would buy into that. But do you buy into this idea that uh, the Chinese government is willing to sort of allow that to happen? Yeah, I think they want to manage it. I don't think they want a big. I don't think they want a big movement in the currency. So whether it goes up or down, I think they want it to be relatively contained. Because um, I think one of the biggest stories for next year is going to be, and this kind of goes back to the the view around the dollar, which is. China is going to be a capital importer, which which means essentially that their current account surplus is gone, and next year they will be reliant on foreign investment to maintain a stable balance of payments and also to plug the current account. So I think what they're trying to do is kind of manage the currency in a way where they're showing foreign investors that it's a stable form of investment. And so they will be more reliant on portfolio flows, uh, equity and fixed income flows, and so kind of not... I think, I guess, reducing the volatility of the currency and creating some uns- more certainty around what the, the bands of direction are is something that would be much more important for them. So I think, especially when you kind of look at the forward markets and things that have already been priced in, people are kind of expecting dollar CNH to, to rally next year. So I think you know, their ability to kind of let these market forces operate uh, a little bit better, also understanding that they will have to import more capital, I think will reassure investors that it's a it's a stable place to at least park more equity and more fixed income flow, which is part of the uh, the the process of kind of moving towards you know different forms of uh, of reserve currencies. Well, we're moving towards a process of lower lows right now in the S and P 500. We are down more than 45 points. That's a drop of 1.8 percent. That translates into a decline of more than 9 percent year to date. Mark McCormick, at what point do these U.S. assets start looking attractive and attract foreign capital into the U.S.? 
Well, that, I think that's going to be the tricky part for next year is because what you're seeing is U.S. rates on a rate of change perspective are dropping. U.S. real rates are, are dropping as well. The U.S. yield curve is flattening. And so if you think about who the marginal savers are around the world, it's the Europeans and it's actually the Japanese. It's not – It's the current account surplus countries no more, no longer the petrostates in China. It's actually – G10 countries like China or like Japan and the Eurozone. So the question becomes, why would the Europeans and the Japanese want to reinvest in the United States? And, and this is right. where it comes back to the shape of the yield curve. It comes back right. to the hedging costs. So right. to, to, for us, the major story for next year is yield curves outside the U.S. are much steeper. Thanks so very G10, much. That's where we're going to be looking next year. Steeper yield curves. Mark McCormick, TD Securities, North American head of FX strategy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.